Lord, <clears throat> you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. If you talk to a Christian from one of the younger generations and you ask them what it means to them that they're a Christian, how does that affect their life? You're likely to hear things like, well, I fight against human trafficking, right? I fight against unfair labor practices. I'm working to eradicate modern day slavery. I'm working toward racial and gender equality, right? You're likely to hear about social justice issues sometimes, we call them because social justice issues are the in thing right now at the moment among Christians and outside of the Christian world. But some older Christians remember a movement that got labeled the social gospel. Social gospel started before any of our time, but it was in the early 20th century Christians trying to struggle with how to minister to immigrants, how to minister to people being exploited in factories. And churches like ours in our faith tradition ended up rejecting the social gospel in its final form because somewhere along the way in the movement, the gospel was lost in the quest for the social. In other words, it became so focused on social action that there was no longer any kind of call for personal conversion. Jesus' death was no longer a sacrifice to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. It was now just a good example of selflessness for the world to follow. And so some Christians today are worried that the modern day social justice crowd, well, are they just headed down that same road of the social gospel that we've seen before? Um... Is this even biblical, this whole social justice thing anyway? Aren't we supposed to just be all about the cross of Jesus and what he did for us? Well, as you know, if you've been around, we're looking at the book of Amos right now. And Amos, many theologians and scholars would say, the primary topic of it is social justice, actually. And today, we're going to be looking at the primary passage within Amos that deals with the topic of social justice. And so we're going to be able to take this issue head on and examine what does it look like for the life of a Christian? What role does social justice play in the life of a Christian? Would you turn with me to Amos chapter 5? As you're turning to Amos chapter 5 in the Old Testament, let me remind you that Amos was a businessman. He was a dealer in sheep. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel with a message. And it was an uncomfortable message that he was sent to the northern kingdom with. He was sent to a people who were wealthy. They were prosperous. They were feeling good about themselves. And he was sent with this message that their economic and political and military comfort was not actually a sign of God's favor. Actually, God was displeased with the northern kingdom of Israel. And so two weeks ago, we heard Amos telling them that everyone has to answer to God, you included. Last week, we heard that God was opposed to their evil and sin, and today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into just what that evil and sin looked like. The three if statements that we're going to look at today, they're all in your bulletin, printed out already, so that you don't have to scramble to try to write them down as we go. But these three if statements are going to walk us through the messages of the three sections of our text today. There's a section today about life, there's a section of our text today about hypocrisy, and there's a section of our text today about power. 
And we'll walk through those three in turn, and then at the end we'll be able to uh, look at a simple big idea that runs through all three sections. First, let's go to the section about life, chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. The message there is that if we want to live, we must seek the Lord with justice and righteousness. If we want to live, we must seek the Lord with justice and righteousness. I hope you had a chance to read chapter 5 this week as you're preparing and getting your heart ready for this sermon. Um, If you did, you may have noticed some repetition there in chapter 5. The same phrase or similar phrase is repeated three times. You can look at it now if you didn't notice it earlier. In verse 4, it says, seek me and live, God speaking. In verse 6, it's seek the Lord and live. And then in verse 14, it's seek good and not evil, that you may live. So there's some repetition going on here. In other words, it's, it's a life or death issue that Amos is talking to Israel about. He's putting two choices in front of them. Choice A will lead to life. And not just any sort of life, in the context of Amos and how he talks about it, it's the sort of rich, abundant, meaningful life that God himself lives and that he invites us into. And choice B will lead to death, but not just physical death, although that would be bad enough. No, it's the sort of existence in which you're breathing and your heart is beating, but death would be preferable because you're so materially and spiritually devastated that your life has been wrecked. So we've got this choice between life and death that's been presented by Amos, but the question, of course, that arises is, if there's a choice between life and death, how do we live and not die? And I think the answer is right here in this repetition. How do we live? Well, seek me, God says. Seek the Lord. And then in verse 14, he expands on that and says, seek good and not evil, that you may live. So there's a progression. Seek me, seek the Lord, seek good and not evil. But even in the third one, in verse 14, that seek good and not evil— It's still about seeking the Lord, because look in your Bible at how the end of verse 14 goes. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. So this whole thing, this whole progression, is ultimately about seeking the Lord. That's the goal. Be with the Lord. That's where life is, according to Amos, is there in the presence of God. So he's saying, go after that. Seek it. Have you heard about Forrest Fenn's treasure? Forrest Fenn is this art dealer, collector out west, and seven years ago now, he claimed to have buried a treasure somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, a million dollar treasure. And so for seven years now, he's been giving clues, nine clues so far, and people have been moving out west in search of this treasure. And three people have died so far seeking this treasure, and many, many others are out there looking for it as we speak. He said that there have been people who have come within 200 feet of the treasure, and that's led even more people to move out there and devote their lives to seeking it. I think that that's sort of a modern-day parable for the life of the Christian, actually, because the life of the Christian is a life of, at all costs, seeking the Lord, desperately yearning to be in his presence. His presence, experiencing him with us, is our pearl of great price, that great treasure that we'd sell everything else to go and get. And that's why, in verse 14, even when it goes to seeking good and not evil, the reason is, so the Lord will be with you. Maybe some of you who aren't Christians, but who have been around Christians, have heard Christians pray a prayer like this. Lord, be with us today. You heard a prayer like that? Lord, be with us today, right? And maybe you wondered, hey Christian, why do you pray that prayer, Lord, be with us today? Don't you all believe that God is everywhere? 
if God is everywhere, isn't he already here with you? So why are you praying, Lord, be with us today, Mr. Christian, Miss Christian? I think that's worth us thinking about as Christians, right? Because a lot of times we just pray that prayer on autopilot. Um, But here's the way the Bible talks about God being with us or not with us. On one hand, God is everywhere, right? The Bible teaches that. It's true that he's everywhere. But he's not everywhere with the intention of blessing those he's with. Does that make sense? Here's what I mean. At the end of verse 14, there's a little phrase that we skipped over. Seek good, not evil, that you may live, so the Lord will be with you. What? As you have said. So these people of Israel, they were apparently claiming that God was with them. They were claiming that he was already with them. Maybe they thought because they were prospering. That was an evidence that God's presence must be here in our midst. But God through Amos says, no, 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 that's not my presence that you're experiencing. If you want me with you, as you say that I'm with you, then you come be with me. And the way you do that is to seek good and not evil. God was with Israel. Don't get it wrong. He was with Israel in the same sense that he's in the back of your closet and at the bottom of the deepest ocean, right? But he wasn't with them in the sense of seeking actively to bless them. And that's what we're praying for when we ask the Lord to be with us. It's a hard truth, though, when we start to realize that what the Bible teaches is that God's presence isn't good news for everybody. Maybe the old preacher said it best when he said it this way. I have good news and bad news for you this morning. The good news is God is here. The bad news is God is here. Whether that's good news or bad news for you depends which side of the line you're standing on. Friends, we ought to be careful to examine ourselves before we just throw up the casual prayer, God be with us. Because in verse 8 of our text, he's present as a creator. You notice that? But in verse 9 of our text, he's present as a destroyer. We've heard from this pulpit earlier this year that God's presence with Peter broke Peter out of prison in the middle of the night. But God's presence with Ananias and Sapphira struck them dead. Right? So, seek the Lord and live, and verse 14 is clarified with seek good, not evil, because to seek God and seek evil is a death wish. You don't want God with you if you're seeking evil. Right? The way to seek the Lord, the way to live, is to seek good. Or, to use the pairing of terms that Amos is going to use throughout this book, and that we see in verse 7, seek righteousness and justice. Do you see that pairing there in verse 7 of chapter 5? You who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. We're going to see that Amos uses that pairing of terms, justice and righteousness, all throughout this book. And together they make up what we would call social justice today. So Tim Keller explains the richness of these terms really well and concisely. And so I just want to use his words and uh, read those to you so you can kind of understand the richness that's wrapped up in justice and righteousness that maybe doesn't quite come through in our English translations. Here's how Keller explains it. These two words, justice and righteousness, roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is mishpat in Hebrew. That means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. So that's what happens after the fact, after injustice has been done to set things right, okay? But primary justice, or zadokah, that's the behavior that, if it was prevalent in the world in the first place, that would render the rectifying justice unnecessary. 
because everyone would be living in right relationship to everyone else. Does that make sense? So together, the zadakah, that's what we just translated righteousness in our text, on the front end, and the mishpat, that's the justice in our text on the back end after the fact, together they make up what we would call today social justice. Living in a way with one another that leads to shalom, peace, flourishing in society for everyone in society. So, to give an example, zadakah is accompanying the elderly widow to the auto lot to make sure she doesn't get taken advantage of by the used car salesman, right? Mishpat is helping that same elderly widow get justice after she's fallen victim to a phone scam, right? Zadakah is on Saturday, using your Saturday mornings to tutor a 16-year-old African-American boy from North Chicago who um, comes from a family that doesn't have much money and is trying to study for the ACT to get into college. Mishpat is coming alongside that same young man to help him get justice when he's thrown on the ground and unnecessarily beaten by police, even though he was cooperating and had nothing to do with what went wrong just because they were looking for a criminal that he fit the profile of. Right? Zadokah, Mishpat, both are wrapped up in what we would call social justice. And if we want to live, we have to seek the Lord, Amos says. And if we want to truly seek the Lord, Amos says, we have to seek righteousness and justice. Both. What we would call social justice. So that little intro to social justice gets us into our second section, which is about hypocrisy. In chapter 5, verses 18 to 27. I'm actually going to read this whole section. But the idea we're going to see here is this. If our religion like what we're doing here this morning, if our religion hasn't been accompanied by justice and righteousness, the day of the Lord will be dreadful. If our religion hasn't been accompanied by justice and righteousness, the day of the Lord will be dreadful. I'm going to read verses 18 to 27. I'd love for you to follow along and just listen and look for two misperceptions that Amos corrects here. See if you can see the two misperceptions that Amos corrects in Amos 5, verses 18 through 27. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So there's two misperceptions that are corrected here. The first misperception is the day of the Lord is going to be awesome. The day of the Lord is going to be great. The day of the Lord seems like a day in the future that Israel was looking forward to. They thought it was going to be the day when God set everything right, when he took vengeance on his enemies, right? And what they thought or assumed that that would mean is that God's going to elevate us, Israel, to chief among the nations, and he's going to crush all the other nations under our feet, But God, through Amos, is like, 
Why do you want the day of the Lord? That's going to be a day of darkness, not light for you. It's going to be a day of gloom, not brightness. It's going to be like one of those nightmares when you escape the lion, but then a bear eats you. Amos says the day of the Lord is going to be dreadful for you. That's misperception one. The day of the Lord is not going to be great. Misperception two seems to be something like this. They're assuming God loves our worship services. He's so impressed by what we do in worship. Did you notice what Amos said about that, starting in verse 21? God says through Amos, not only am I not impressed with your worship, I actually hate what you're doing in worship. He uses the word, I despise your worship. Um, I wish you would stop singing. I wish you'd stop passing the offering plate. I wish you'd just stop all of it. And that might be shocking for some of you to read verses 21 through 27 and see that there. Because maybe you thought that God was the sort of God who is just happy with us going through the motions of religion and that he's pleased by us doing religious type of activities. Maybe you thought he's like the parent who will give you allowance, but only if you do your chores, right? And you think, hey, I, I do my chores from God's perspective. My chores are maybe going to church on Sunday morning, sitting quietly through the sermon, singing the songs when everybody else is singing, putting a little bit of money in the offering plate. So I do my chores and then God's happy with me, right? And if he's happy with me, then maybe he'll give me my allowance. And if my allowance is maybe he'll make my life go better. It seems like that's what Israel was thinking. That was their attitude. But God's like, no, actually I'd rather you didn't go to church at all during this week if you're going to be living this way. But the question is why? What is the situation here? What's the situation that would make God hate these people's worship services? What's the situation that would make God say that the day of the Lord is going to be dreadful for them? I think the answer is in verse 24. The problem in Israel was that they're doing all the religious rituals they were supposed to do. They're even doing them in the right ways. Other, other places in Amos we see that they're even adding on extra religious rituals to be super spiritual. But they're not doing what God really wants the most. And what does God really want the most? Verse 24, and Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us of it in 1963, didn't he? Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God hated the worship of Israel because justice wasn't rolling. The day of the Lord was going to be dreadful for Israel because righteousness wasn't flowing. That's what we call hypocrisy. When our Sunday morning worship doesn't flow out of the way that we're already living from Monday through Saturday, our Sunday religion ceases to be pleasing to God. Right? So, what is Israel doing for six days that makes their seventh day worship displeasing to God, distasteful to him? Well, I think we've seen some of it in the first four chapters, haven't we? Back in chapter 2, you might remember from a couple weeks ago, we heard that people who owed money were being sold into debt slavery. The poor were being treated like dirt. The powerless were being fined so that the powerful could buy alcohol. In chapter 3, last week, we heard about people living in grand houses using expensive building materials while others were in need. We read in verse 15 of chapter 3 about people having a winter home and a summer home while others had no home. In chapter 4, last week, we saw that the leading women were indulging themselves in leisure instead of caring for the poor. And now in today's text, what do we see? Chapter 5, verses, verse 10 a fair legal verdict is given, and the powerful are furious because they expected to be able to bribe the judge and win their case in court as a result. Verse 11, the poor get taxed and the money goes to benefit the rich. 
Verse 12, judges take bribes and so they won't listen to a poor person's case because the poor person can't pay the bribe. It's clear throughout all the chapters of Amos that both Zadokah and Mishpat are both being violated in Israel. Social justice is being obliterated on the front end and on the back end. On the front end, people are indulging their greed before taking care of each other's needs. They're putting their greed before each other's needs. And so Mishpat is needed as a result to make the whole situation right. But then on the back end, Mishpat isn't even happening to make things right because when a poor person comes with a straightforward case to the judge, they're turned away at the door to the courthouse because they don't have money to pay the bribe. I mean, that's enough just talking about Israel, though. Let's just turn our attention to us, right? How should we be thinking about the day of the Lord? Is the day of the Lord going to be a day that we should look forward to or dread? What about here at North Suburban Church? Is God pleased with our worship here on Sunday mornings? Or is he just waiting for 12 o'clock so we'll finally put the guitars away and end this nauseating exercise in his eyes and ears? I hope it's clear at this point that that question, the answer to that question depends on the answer to a prior question, which is, are we living with justice and righteousness from Monday to Saturday? Are we practicing righteousness and justice in our everyday life? And so we've got to get real here for a second, really consider this and think about it. Because it would be easy to just read Amos and hear about taxes of grain and just think, well, I've never dealt with grain. I'm clear there. Move on, right? But I'm about to prod for a minute into what's going on below the surface when there's a tax of grain and etc. And so, Lord, please just soften our hearts here to hear what you have for us. What I'm not going to do as I prod for the next couple minutes is I'm not going to go on a rant about driving down Sheridan Road and seeing all the opulence in Winnetka, okay? That's not what I'm going to do for many reasons that I'll explain. But the main reason is that as I've been preparing this sermon the last few weeks, I've become aware of plenty of social injustice in my own heart. And so just for the next few minutes, I'm going to limit myself to just sharing some examples from what I can personally repent of and have been repenting of over the last couple of weeks. Here are three things I've seen in myself over the last few weeks studying Amos. One, I've crushed the needy. I've crushed the needy. How have I done that? Well, when I was in seminary, and we only had one income for three years, Um, We didn't have much, but we still found a way to bless people with needs. You know, something would come up. Somebody would have a car payment they couldn't make. Somebody would have a surgery that wasn't covered by their insurance. We would find a way to get some money together and bless that person. Then I graduate from seminary. Now we've got two incomes. And the questions that I'm starting to ask aren't, how can I bless more people with that money? It's things like this. Oh, man, now I can start moving toward a down payment on this house. Maybe now we can get a safe car for our son. Man, it's really irresponsible for us not to have life insurance. We've got to take care of that. Our son's got to go to college someday. It's really, really be wise to start putting away for that now. Man, it'd be nice to have Netflix. We need to just treat ourselves after going through three years of seminary, right? Netflix, nobody, it's not bad. And so little by little, I'm just coming up with these excuses that seem legitimate, But they end up being excuses to double our income without giving any more above our tithe than we were already giving, right? 
Now, somebody's like, hey, Tim, you said you're crushing the needy. I haven't heard anything that you said that is crushing the needy. But actually, according to Amos and the rest of Scripture, yes, it is. There's a principle, just to summarize it quickly, that runs throughout Scripture that goes something like this. If you have two of something, while another of God's people has zero of something, your second one doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the person who doesn't have one. Okay? If you have two and another, person, another of God's people has zero, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them. That's why in chapter 4, Amos said these women were crushing the needy when all they were indicted for is indulging in luxury. That's the only wrong they were doing, but indulging, for, indulging our desires for luxury is crushing the needy because as Christians, our extra doesn't actually belong to us. Jesus himself said it in Luke chapter 3, verse 10. He said, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. And that wasn't as part of like an extra credit aside, like, hey, if you want to be a super Christian, here's some extra things you can do. This is like baseline requirement if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. And so it's not really, it would really be nice of me if I were more charitable. It's if I keep my second one while somebody else doesn't have one, I'm a thief. I'm guilty of injustice. So that's one thing I've been convicted of and repenting of and that we've been talking about in our home over recent weeks. The second is that I've dehumanized the poor. I realize I've dehumanized the poor. How have I done that? Well, from time to time, Sarah and I get to go into the city for a nice dinner and maybe go see a show. And I don't know how many homeless people we walk by as we go down there. And since we moved here, I haven't stopped to give people the time of day or a dollar of my money. Now, again, somebody is like, hey, this young preacher's naive. I knew it. Somebody needs to tell him and explain to him. Maybe I'll grab him after service and tell him that that kind of helping actually hurts people. If you just give money to homeless people because they abuse it, they go use it to buy money, buy drugs. Um, I'll explain that to him. We'll educate him later on. I've read the literature about all that. I get it. I also have read Jesus, who says, give to anyone who asks of you. And I'm prone to give those words of Jesus a lot of weight. But more than even Jesus' ethical commands, I've just been hit by his gospel of grace. And that gospel of grace has made me slower to be somebody who is like, what if they abuse it? Here's why. What if Jesus would have said that? He's considering coming down here and living and dying for us. What if he would have been like, you know what? I'm not going to go down there and die for Tim. He's just going to take that grace that I give him and he's going to just step all over it and abuse it. He's going to use it as license to just sin more. I'm not going to give him that grace just so he can sin more with it. Right? I'm so glad that Jesus didn't say that. But he came, he knew that I was going to abuse his grace. And I have many, many times. And I have used it as a license to sin more. And he came and died for me anyway. And showered me with that grace anyway. And I'm so, so grateful for it. That I'm now rethinking as I read Amos. Why am I not extending the generosity of God to those in need of it? Just because I'm sitting up on my lofty perch and deciding that you don't deserve it. Right? In the past, in a more idealistic phase in my life, I would plan extra time into my day so that I could spend some time with those people, ask their name, humanize them. I would bring a little extra money that I could 
give if I knew I was going to be running across homeless people, right? But now, get busy. There's no margins in my life anymore, and I've just become another person who's just trampling on the head of the poor as I go to my nice dinner and high societal entertainment. That's the second thing that Sarah and I have talked about this week that I'm personally repenting of. Third, and finally, I've I've ignored injustice when it didn't affect me. I've ignored injustice when it didn't affect me. I've noticed some things, heard some things, read some things since living here on the North Shore. I haven't done anything about it because it doesn't affect me. I've noticed that the North Shore is overwhelmingly white, but when I'm driving down the road and I notice people getting pulled over, at least half of them seem to be like people of color, I have heard from my friends who are people of color um, the stories about getting followed in retail stores to make sure they don't shoplift. I've heard their stories about getting pulled over and getting grilled relentlessly about this isn't really your car, whose car is this? I've read stories about our towns here on the North Shore having town hall meetings to talk about introducing some affordable housing, only to be shouted down by people saying, we don't want those kind of people around here. Now, what have I done about all that? Nothing. And as I've examined my heart over the last couple weeks, I'm realizing that a big part of that is where I go with that is this attitude that I don't want to admit, but is my attitude. And that's, I'm so glad that I'm white and middle class that I don't have to deal with all this, honestly. So I haven't called my congresspeople on behalf of the vulnerable, whether immigrants, refugees, orphans, the poor, the unborn. I haven't researched local government officials and tried to vote for the ones who are going to do the most justice in the community. I haven't spoken up on behalf of the vulnerable, even sometimes when people spoke ill of them in my presence. I haven't said anything. But I'm convinced, for all those reasons, all those things that I personally have to repent of, that if God is displeased with our congregation's exercise of social justice, that I'm a major part of the problem, personally. I don't believe that just because some of you live in million-dollar homes and I live in a rented condominium that that means that I'm practicing social justice more than you are. I, I know too many wealthy people, including some of you who honor the Lord by giving until it really hurts you and who steward your money in a way that is blessing those around you every single day. And I know my own heart too well that I know that I, I'm just as able to sin with $1,000 as somebody else is with a million. So it's not about any of that. I'm just wondering if you're letting yourself consider this morning that you might be complicit in some of the injustice that Amos is talking about here in chapters 5 and 6. Think about your workplace practices. Think about the standard mode of operation in your industry that you're in that nobody ever questions. Think about your spending. Think about the goods that you spend money on. Think about the attitude that you have toward the vulnerable. Are you guilty in any of those ways of this injustice? It can be scary to let yourself go there and think that way. What's scary about it is you start that, you let that thought come in, and then the next thought is, if I let myself go down this road, I could lose way too much. I could lose my career trajectory. I could lose my retirement prospects, my standard of living. I could lose it all if I start thinking this way and putting all this on the table. It's much easier not to consider it, but I just 
I want to plead with you this morning for the sake of your own soul. Ask God to show you the sin in your heart before you leave here, even today. Our prayer is that for you, for all of us here, that our experience on the day of the Lord would be that it's a day of light, not a day of darkness. Let's look at the third point much more briefly. Third point's about power. It's all of chapter 6. The idea there is that if we've used our societal standing in an unjust manner, our confident ease is misguided. If we use our societal standing in an unjust manner, our confident ease is misguided. I just want to point out a few important features from chapter 6. You'll notice as you're looking at the text that this section is about people, elites, who are at ease. So verse 1 says they're at ease, they feel secure, they are notable men, quote-unquote. Verses 4 through 7 say they lie on beds of ivory, they stretch out on couches, they have so much leisure time that they're inventing new musical instruments to entertain themselves. They don't even take the time to put their wine into cups, they just drink it straight out of the storage container. People use oils to get rid of lice, they buy the absolute finest oils even though any old oil will do. They have no worries about their enemies because they live on a mountain, according to verse 1. They have conquered all their enemies in the past, verse 13. So they're just kicked back, at ease, not worried. But God is displeased strongly with how they're living. But some of us might be willing to admit, if we really think about it, that in our hearts we're no different. Some of us actually are working for the day when we get to live just like this. Some of you maybe would have drawn this up as your idea for retirement. And you're working your tail off every day to work for the day when you can just stretch out and ease like this. That heart attitude is the exact same as actually doing it. We're no better off in many ways. There's an analogy I heard that helps to contrast two different ways of life. One's spoken of here contrasted with the way we're supposed to live as Christians. Uh, The analogy goes like this. There's two different types of ships that you can live on for a prolonged period of time. One is a battleship. The other is a cruise liner. There may be others. Those are two. Um, On a battleship, you wake up every morning with a purpose for your day. There's a goal that you're working toward, and so you're always alert. You don't complain about your quarters or about the conditions because you don't expect anything different. The boat's been designed for the purpose that you are there for, right? You're on a cruise liner, you don't wake up with a purpose each morning, except maybe to entertain yourself. You're not alert, you're at ease, right? You don't beat your body to uh, get it into shape. You stretch out and relax and indulge yourself. So you get irritated when your steak's a little overdone or when your bed's a little too firm, right? Because everything on the ship is supposed to be working toward my enjoyment. The analogy is that the Christian life is a call to live every moment of every day until our dying breath as though we're on a battleship, not on a cruise liner. We are not, as Christians, those who indulge ourselves. We're those who are ready for action. As Christians, we're not those who seek ease and comfort. We're those who seek victory in battle. We're those who wake up with a purpose, who attack each day with a relentless enthusiasm previously unknown to mankind, Because we are engaged day after day in the most important activity that exists on the whole earth. Namely, the battle for the expansion of the kingdom of God. But our enemies at work too. 
and his tactics are all around us. It's in the air that we breathe. I can feel his tentacles around me sometimes. I've been feeling them over the course of this year as I buy a car, as I get some patio furniture, as I get outfits for my son that are so cute, and as I kick back and relax and enjoy the ease of living in a safe neighborhood in a wealthy suburb and with a washer and dryer in my unit and I have all my needs taken care of. It's I can feel the relaxation taking place. And Satan gets in there, and he wants to use that. And he wants to transfer that material ease into a spiritual ease that goes right along with it. He wants to make me kick back, not just materially, but spiritually as well. And I can feel him, I'm telling you I can feel him, as I shared earlier, succeeding in getting me to live as though I'm on a cruise liner in my Christian walk instead of on a battleship. There's serious implications of that. Verses 7 through 11 of chapter 6 say that those who led the way into sin will lead the way into exile. You see that in verse 7? They shall now be the first of those who go into exile. These, who's it talking about? People just like us. Verse 1 calls them the notable men of the first of the nations. Chapter 4 called them the leading women of Israel, right? And by any sort of measurement, they're the sort of people that identify with us here on the North Shore, right? What's the first of the nations, if not America, right? For the past 60 years, politically, militarily, economically, we are the first of the nations. And within America, the first of the nations, we're in the wealthiest handful of zip codes that exist in America. So the reality is, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you wrote your name on a piece of paper, set it here, then you put the names of all 7 billion people in the world on sheets of paper and put them in a hat here. And you drew out 99, put them aside. So now you've got 100 names here, one of them's yours, the other 99 are at random from the other 7 billion people in the world. It's overwhelmingly likely, exponentially, astronomically, overwhelmingly likely, that you are the richest of the 100 people here. Richest and most powerful. And that goes even for those of you who were sad a couple weeks ago because you had to send your kid to school without the name brand sneakers that everybody else had. Just by virtue of living where we live, in this place where we live, we have more wealth and power, almost every one of us, than 99.9% of the world. But to whom much is given, much is required. So if we've got a power and an influence that most of the world doesn't have, we're going to be held to account for how we use that. And if we squander our power and influence and wealth, It's not just that we're going to miss out on an extra blessing we could have gotten from God if we would have been more generous. It's that we're going to be subject to judgment. According to Amos, those who led the way into sin are going to lead the way into exile. Fifty years after this, that's exactly what happened. The Assyrians came in, and who do you think they took out first when they took people into exile? The wealthy, the elites, they took them out first. And those who were once rich and powerful became servants in the lands of their enemies. So the bottom line today is this. We must repent of our social injustice. Very simple, big idea. We must repent, turn away from our social injustice. We're going to have a chance to do that before we even leave here today. And that's why the sermon was pushed up in, in, the, in the service. Because we're going to make some time to do that and not just talk about it today. I'm going to leave with some practical steps that might trigger some reflection over the next few minutes. Um, But first, a caveat. I understand that heart change, heart transformation, 
is what's most important. The inner is what's most, first and foremost, on the mind of God in terms of what he wants from us. And what comes inside often precedes lasting outward change. But we have to acknowledge that the Bible can also talk about it in reverse as well. That when we're wanting inward change, sometimes doing the outward motions helps us get to that place of inward change where we want to be. And so I do want to leave you with a few tangible, practical steps to think about before we go. One, learn to hate sin in practice, not just in theory. So that would mean learning about tangible injustices in the world and starting to fight against them. Two, make a friend who has suffered oppression and grieve with them. Now that might require putting ourselves in position to rub shoulders with people we don't usually rub shoulders with. Number three, instead of trying to manipulate the law, think about how to be most just. In other words, don't look for shortcuts and loopholes in the law. Instead, seek to bless those who interact with your business and be totally just to them. Four, ask the hard questions about the justice of everything that's under your leadership. So get some feedback from people who are inside your industry and see how you lead. Get some feedback from people who are outside your industry and might not take for granted some of the things in your industry that someone within it might take for granted. Five, give your neighbor what belongs to him or her. That goes back to what we said earlier. If you have two, the second one isn't yours. Give it to the one who has zero. Give to them what rightfully belongs to them. And sixth, draw an enough line. What that means is that some families decide, sit down as a family and decide, here's what we need to live. Anything God decides to give us above and beyond that, we're going to give away. And we're going to live on what we've determined is enough for us. Your life group discussion guides have more ideas along these lines if you're thinking of practical ways um, to do justice. But I just want to just acknowledge right now as we're closing that some of you, for some of you, this was uncomfortable this morning. It was uncomfortable for me. Maybe for some of you, talking about social justice was uncomfortable because you want to make sure that we don't get it backwards, that we keep the gospel above social action. And you're worried that if we start to talk about social action, social justice, that we're going to get it flipped and we're going to become all about social action and not about the gospel anymore. And we're just going to be giving people a more comfortable journey to hell. I think there's an important warning in that, that we need to hear from you, that yes, the gospel is critical. It's of utmost importance, and we're only doing so much good if we do all the social action in the world, and it isn't accompanied by meeting people's eternal needs, their greatest eternal need, which is to know Jesus as their Savior. But on the flip side, we can't escape the vast swaths of biblical teaching run throughout the Bible, specifically prominently in the prophets, including in Amos, but even in the mouth of our Lord Jesus, that talk about social justice. And the message from Genesis to Revelation is that anyone who thinks they're good with God while practicing injustice is wrong about being good with God. The fact that you're practicing injustice as a habit in your life shows that you aren't actually good with God like you thought you were. And that's true for us individually and it's true for us corporately. And so it's cause for sober reflection for us. It's not just that social justice is compatible with the gospel. It's that social justice is a necessary implication of the gospel that we treasure and that we preach here at North Sub. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time in individual confession and reflection, 
and then some time in corporate confession and reflection. And we're going to ask God to show us where we've run afoul of the social justice we've been called to by God in his word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I was broken before your word, preparing for this message and realizing the depths of the sin in my own heart. And Lord, we just ask that over the next few minutes that you do the hard work that we don't like, that's uncomfortable, but that is so good for us, that you'd show us our sin, that you'd give us the courage to name it and acknowledge it, and that you'd give us the boldness to bring that before you and lay it at your feet. Lord, as we repent of our sin, as we turn away from it, Lord, let your grace shower over us and help us to cling to your blood, which washes over all of our sin and makes us clean. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's a lot easier to talk about repenting of our injustice than it is to actually do something about it. So that's why we moved the sermon up, so we have some time to actually do something about it. So we're going to pray individually, together. We're going to reflect, we're going to confess, we're going to repent. We're going to do that right now because we would risk leaving this place and just forgetting about what we just saw in God's word. And after all of it, we're going to sing with gratitude for God's grace to wrap up the service. But the next five minutes or so will be a time of individual reflection. And that'll be in the mode of Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. I think we might have a slide for that. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Make this your prayer right now. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, those words by the psalmist are an invitation for God to do something uncomfortable. It's inviting him to take his flashlight, as it were, and to shine his flashlight around all the different corners of our hearts, even those dark corners that we'd rather keep hidden. And it's an invitation that when he finds the nasty stuff that's lurking there, it's inviting him to lay every bit of ugliness out on the table in plain view in front of us so that it can be seen and acknowledged and repented of. So when you arrived today, you were given a little slip of paper that says reflection and confession on it. During these next five minutes, we want to invite you to write on that slip of paper any sort of social injustice God's showing you in your heart this morning. Think about your home. Think about your workplace. Think about your friendships, your politics, your habits and patterns. Don't close off any part of your life this morning from God's revealing light. And when he shows you something, just write it down as a confession. You know, if we were secular people, that's all we could do is just confess our sins and hold on to the sheet as a reminder and hope to do better in the future, right? But you all know how hoping to do better in the future goes when we try to do that on our own strength. The injustice in our hearts, it runs so deep that none of us could free ourselves from it. So what makes this a Christian service is that we have hope. That hope is represented at three crosses, one there, one there, and one in the back. Because specifically, we have hope because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah. So when you've written your confession on your sheet, we want to encourage you not to hold on to it, but to fold it in half and take it on your own time and lay it at the foot of one of the crosses, whichever one's closest 
to you, whichever one's easiest for you to access, and just lay it there. Nobody will read it. They'll be collected in the end and disposed of. But we want to take that step of laying those at the cross as an acting out of what we believe about the gospel that cleanses us from all of our sin. So we'll have five minutes to do that, and then five minutes I'll uh, ask for your attention once more for a corporate confession.